Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm Dr. David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine, chiropractor, and functional nutrition practitioner, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself, and on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. I'm excited about today's podcast, but before we jump in, I wanted to remind you to download this month's special gift at drjockersgift.com. From keto meal plans, smoothie recipes, to fasting quick start guides, we have a new complimentary gift every single month. To get your gift, simply visit drjockersgift.com. That's D-R-J-O-C-K-E-R-S-G-I-F-T.com. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. I wanted to take a moment and tell you about one of my favorite companies, Paleo Valley. They make some of the world's best health products, and I really love their Essential C Complex, which is one of the only immune-boosting products on the market that's made from whole food sources of vitamin C that your body can effectively absorb. You see, most vitamin C products only contain a fraction of vitamin C called ascorbic acid. This is the synthetic form of vitamin C, and it's often processed with GMO corn. With Essential C Complex, you get the full spectrum of vitamin C with all the additional nutrients, minerals, and bioflavonoids that make it so powerful in the first place, the way nature intended. Paleo Valley Essential C Complex contains three of the most potent sources of vitamin C on the planet, the unripe acerola cherry, the amla berry, and the kamu kamu berry. The acerola cherry alone is 120 times more potent than an orange. The daily recommended amount of vitamin C was decided upon based on the amount of vitamin C you need to not get scurvy, not really the amount you need for a stronger immune system. And this is why Paleo Valley Essential C Complex contains 750% of your daily recommended value of vitamin C, completely sourced from nature. So you can thrive, not just survive. You see, vitamin C is an extremely fragile nutrient, and it can very easily lose potency if it's not processed correctly. So Paleo Valley has worked with the most responsible manufacturers they could find to gently break down each of these fruits. And to guarantee no vitamin C was lost in the processing, they recruited a non-biased, third-party tester to confirm it contains the amount they put on the label. Because in times like these, when everything seems uncertain, your immune system shouldn't be. Paleo Valley Essential C Complex is non-GMO, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, dairy-free, and made with all organic superfoods. No fillers or flow agents that you'll find in most supplements. Nothing weird, just food. Check out paleovalley.com and use the coupon code JOCKERS, just simply my last name, JOCKERS, J-O-C-K-E-R-S, today to get 15% off your order. So this interview is a part of a series I did called the Fasting Transformation Summit. 
And in this summit, I interviewed the top experts in the world when it comes to intermittent and extended fasting and autophagy and self-healing. Now, these interviews were originally done in 2019, but the information is extremely relevant today. And this expert, as you will see, really has a great knowledge of this topic and will give you guys so much value. Now, if you wouldn't mind just taking a moment and leaving us a five-star review, your reviews help us reach more people and impact more lives with this podcast. And take a moment and subscribe to our channel. That way you get instant notification every time we put up a new podcast. Thanks so much for doing that. And I'm honored to share this information with you guys. Welcome everybody to the Fasting Transformation Summit where we are uncovering the most ancient, inexpensive, and powerful healing strategy known to mankind. We're talking about fasting. I'm your host, Dr. David Jockers. And today in this interview, we're going to be talking to Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, who's one of the top researchers when it comes to ketones, the ketogenic diet and lifestyle, and really the impact of nutritional ketosis and just the, this compound ketones that we produce when we're fasting and how it impacts our brain, our body, and really gives us an advantage in life and in particular in certain uh, disease disorders and health disorders. And so we're going to be going into some of the research on that. We're also going to be talking to Dom really about how he applies this with all the research that he's done. He's been involved in many different, I mean, at this point, I imagine hundreds of clinical trials, well-published. And so he knows this information as well as anybody on the planet, and he practically applies it. And so we're also going to talk about how he applies it. And so Dr. Dominic D'Agostino is, is the associate professor with tenure at the University of South Florida. I've been to his lab there. He's doing some great work. He teaches students at Morsani College of Medicine and Department of Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology with a focus on such topics as neuropharmacology, medical biochemistry, physiology, neuroscience, and neuropharmacology. He's also a research scientist at the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition to assist with the efforts towards optimizing the safety, health, and resilience of the warfighter and astronaut. And so, Dom, welcome to the Fasting Transformation Summit. Been really looking forward to this interview. And uh, so, thanks so much for being a part of this. Thank you for having me, David. Appreciate it. Absolutely. I, I love listening to other interviews that you do because you're just so eloquent. You, you communicate the impact of ketones, fasting, and really what this whole summit is about, as well as anybody that I know. And uh, you really live it. And on top of that, you know, you're involved every single day in doing the actual research that is changing the way we look at physiology, the way that we are going to be treating a lot of degenerative conditions out there. And I think, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now, people are going to be looking back, you know, in, in major gratitude for the work that you're doing. And I wouldn't be surprised if one day you were nominated for a Nobel Prize. So really appreciate you and your time. And we'd love to know about how you got involved in this to begin with. Well, uh, thank you for that in intro, David. I don't know if the Nobel Prize thing will ever happen, but uh, I do feel very lucky and fortunate to be able to study something that I could uh, actually implement myself and experience myself. And uh, a really, it, it's a testament to the uh, students and the postdocs and the research associates that are working in the lab because they're super passionate about what we're doing. That's how they ended up uh, in my lab, actually. 
And uh, they're really the ones kind of in the trenches at this point, you know, generating the data, doing the work, and being very passionate about it. And I was in their spot, maybe, uh, I guess going back, I've been funded by the Office of Navy Research for about 12 to 13 years now. And I was doing work to understand the cellular and molecular mechanisms of CNS oxygen toxicity seizures. And I went really from studying cells, neurons, brain cells, to looking at basically cellular mechanisms inside uh, brain slices, which we can keep a, a slice of, for example, the hippocampus alive for the duration of a day. And that has an intact cytoarchitecture, architecture. And we can study the effects of various agents, including ketones, on, on these brain slices, which we're continuing to do work now. So I went from cells to brain slices to whole animal rodent model work. Now we're doing large animal work with the military, and now we're doing human studies. And I guess even before cells, mitochondria. So we go from mitochondria to like the cells to brain slices, whole animals, large animals, human studies, and everything in between. And we are looking at a variety of outcomes in response to, we do do pharmacology research, but I would say most of what we do now, 80% or more is metabolism. So altering the metabolic substrates, we think of ketones as sources of energy, but also uh, as powerful signaling molecules. And uh, we look at, the outcomes that we look at include you know, things like cytokine profile or uh, reactive oxygen species production, or uh, in whole animals, we look at EEG levels. We do metabolomic profiling. We do exercise performance. We do uh, behavioral uh, learning and memory tests. We do anxiety tests. Uh, in human subjects, we are actually doing, you know, seizure studies. So we actually, we have various biomarkers that can predict when a seizure is about to happen. And that's called the latency to the uh, seizure response. And we look at that latency with and without the subject being in ketosis. And those studies are done at Duke University. So they're, they're uh, collaborators with us. So we're really studying it kind of like across the board from many different aspects too. And my fundamental or foundational training, formal training, I guess I would say, was in neuroscience. So that that's really what my primary focus is, but we've branched into doing cancer research. We do, you know, performance studies. We'd look at, you know, a variety of things sort of outside the neuroscience realm now. Very cool. And so let's start this interview really with, with a, a baseline definition for what are ketones and how does the body use those for energy? And you also said that ketones are signaling molecules. So if you can elaborate more on that, that would be great. Sure, yeah. Ketones are, they were called byproducts, but I wouldn't use the term byproducts. They are energy metabolites that are derived from the oxidation of fatty acids that are, occur in the liver. And when you have accelerated fat oxidation in response to carbohydrate restriction or fasting, the liver breaks down fatty acids at an accelerated rate. And those fatty acids then become subject to a process called ketogenesis. And the ketone bodies produced are acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate. The liver does not use the ketones as an energy source. They lack sort of the enzymatic machinery to break them down and to use them for energy. They spill into circulation, and then they can provide energy for peripheral tissues, especially the heart and the brain, the brain especially. 
And now we know there is a variety of uh, signaling pathways that are potently impacted by acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate. And these signaling properties could be a receptor for the ketone body, they could be an anti-inflammatory pathway, and they could be uh, a pathway uh, associated with the regulation of various genes. So ketones can function as histone deacetylase inhibitors, affecting the uh, methylation patterns that can be really therapeutic for a variety of different diseases. One of, one of them we're studying now is called Kabuki syndrome. So we have, we have a active project ongoing, looking at ketones as an epigenetic regulator. So I never thought I would be studying ketones as something that could alter our uh, genetic you know, makeup or pathways. So uh, they are also what we would call, use the term anaplerotic. So the, the metabolism of ketones really assists in, in accelerating the formation of acetyl-CoA. And acetyl-CoA is part, uh, feeds into the Krebs cycle or the tricarboxylic acid cycle. And in doing so, uh, especially in the brain, altering that, that pathway can fundamentally change the neuropharmacology of the brain in a way that is very interesting to me because it also impacts neurotransmitter systems. For example, there's a proportional increase in GABA to glutamate ratio. So glutamate being potentially excitotoxic in the context of neurodegenerative diseases, brain injury, and other pathologies, especially associated with seizures. And there's also sort of an observation that ketones can impact metabolism in the way that it can generate more energy currency in the form of uh, ATP. And this was shown in earlier works looking at the hydraulic efficiency of the heart. And some elegant biochemistry and metabolism studies were done looking at, for example, the delta G of ATP hydrolysis, where we are basically doing studies to look at ATP production uh, per carbon molecule that's going into a system. And it was determined through a series of studies that ketone bodies uh, had a higher delta G of ATP hydrolysis relative to glucose. So in that way, the interpretation, at least in the heart, the working heart preparation, we would think it would apply to other tissues, but it's a little harder to do this in an, in an isolated full brain preparation that it is an efficient, it is a more efficient fuel source and one of the most efficient fuel sources that we know of. So being able to induce this endogenously through endogenous production and also more recently through exogenous supplementation, that is very interesting to me. And about 12 years ago, I knew that there was a lot of research to be done in this because of some of these observations that were done uh, actually decades ago. Yeah, yeah, really, really fascinating, that's for sure. And that glutamate to GABA balance is so key when you have this excessive amount of glutamate, like you were talking about, it yeah. can degenerate the brain. Also, you know, before you develop that brain degeneration, you can develop things like insomnia, anxiety, irritability, things like that when you have too much excitatory neurotransmitter not balanced by the brakes, which would be the GABA. So I found that Absolutely. to be really, really powerful. And I know for myself, when experiencing ketosis, I just feel like, and, and, and practicing fasting in order to do that as well, I just feel like I'm, a, I'm better in every area of my life. I'm less, you know, I'm less anxious, I'm less 
you know, irritable and stirred up by stress and things like that. And it has a lot to do with that glutamate to GABA balance like you were talking about. So, yeah. Now, what are the benefits that we can get by, you know, we talked, we talked a little bit about it. Can you elaborate more on the benefits that we get from driving a lot of our, our cellular energy from ketones? Yeah, yeah, you alluded to sort of feeling maybe what I like to describe as like a calming of the brain on days that I'm yeah. doing intermittent fasting. I don't do it every day, but I do it most days. The only days I don't do it is after like a day of heavy training. I'll usually have a small breakfast in the morning. But from the observations from our lab in rodent models and now in human studies, looking at things like lowering blood glucose which I think is, is really important. There's a, a decrease when you stay in on a ketogenic diet or you take supplemental ketones over time, your baseline insulin level will be lower, triglycerides lower, uh, markers of inflammation will go down. We track uh, HS, a high sensitivity C-reactive protein. Mm -hmm. And many of the, these things will actually occur pretty acutely. So within like, uh, the first week to, to two weeks, you'll see a, a pretty pretty big reduction in glucose. Uh, over several weeks, you'll see uh, hemoglobin A1C go down. Triglycerides go down pretty remarkably when you go on a ketogenic diet. And additional benefits may occur you know, after adaptation. Uh, initially, some of the it, it may be difficult for some people to transition into a, a sugar-burning metabolism to a fat and ketone metabolism. And there's an adaptation and uh, various you know, processes have to happen until you can optimally produce, utilize, and, and kind of transition to a state of nutritional ketosis. And I don't think it's necessarily a state to be in all the time. Uh, I generally do. I rarely go out. But I feel at the very least, people should enter that state maybe once or twice a month. And I think it, it really facilitates a lot of uh, beneficial processes in the body that you could track with, with a number of objective biomarkers. I use a cardiometabolic sort of assay that looks at, you know, insulin, hemoglobin, A1C, triglycerides, inflammatory markers, cholesterol, and things like that. And it just, it's, it's part of a, a package that we use for research. Um, so that, that's what I typically kind of use in our, in our research in, in animal models we can actually pull the tissues out. <laughs> so that's the, that's the benefit of, of doing animal model work is that we can, for example, take the brain out or a brain region out or the liver out to see how this is affecting sort of the liver health and liver metabolism. We could take the heart out. Uh, I have a student that's studying uh, muscle wasting. So we're looking at anti-catabolic effects of ketones, which is another benefit. Many people are trying to lose weight. If you are staying in a state of nutritional ketosis, those ketones will help you spare muscle, especially in the context of adding resistance training to that. So if you want to lose body fat fast, you know, that's where ketosis really shines, I think. You know, going into a calorie deficit with an elevation of ketones will pay big dividends, not only in how you feel, but also with health biomarkers and retaining uh, muscle. Yeah, absolutely. I've experienced this. I uh, recently, earlier, was last month, I, uh, I did a four-day fast, and I was going to do a full five-day fast, water fast. And on the end, it was like towards the end of the fourth day, my body was just like, I've got to go work out. <laughs> like my muscles just 
were giving me this signal, go work out. And yes. so I'm like, okay, I'm going to work out and I'll break my fast after it. And uh, so I went and I worked out and like, at first I was just going to be, I was going to go light, you know, and, and I started doing that and, you know, I increased the weight and I was just as strong as I was, you know, when, I'm, when I was fed, you know, I hadn't eaten in four days and I'm really lean. I'm, I'm regularly 8% body fat. Um, and then I, I, I finished, you know, I, I came home and I wasn't even hungry. I ended up having a protein shake that night to refeed, but I just felt so good, so strong, so resilient. And obviously my ketones were really, really elevated there. And so I know you have a story as well where you did like a, an extended fast and deadlift, didn't you? Yeah, I, I can relate to that. And my body, I think the more you fast, the easier it gets. But uh, the seven day fast I did a while back now, four or five years ago, uh, maybe four years ago, I did do that. I, I had a quite a bit of teaching at the end of on day seven and then uh, kind of went to the gym with a group of people who was, uh, was part of the fitness camp uh, here at the time. And uh, I didn't try to do any you know personal records and deadlifts, but I did go up to my normal sort of working set weight, which would be like five plates on each side and with the collars was 500 pounds. And it was able to do that for an easy 10. And then I did a six plates, which is like uh, 585 after that. And it didn't feel, you know, much different, you know, all that different. I kind of stopped from pushing myself to absolute failure because I thought, you know, in an energy deprived state, which after seven days, you kind of are, I was feeling very good mental clarity, but at the same time, you know, kind of understood that I was in an energy deficit. So I didn't want to break my body down too much. But it was a, a very enlightening experience for me. And I think that our bodies are really hardwired. So if we go several days without fasting and we didn't have robust mental clarity and energy, we would not go on to survive and adapt. Yeah. I mean, so evolution would not select for people that did not respond well to fasting. So, you know, some people say they just can't do it. And I, I think they really just have to power through that second and third and fourth day. And then your, your systems kind of kick in. Because if we couldn't do this, I don't, I don't think we would have been selected <laughs> to, to yeah. this process. So that's, yeah. that's, I know some people, we've had students in the lab before and a few females, they get to the point where they feel like they're going to faint after 24 or 36 hours at that point. But I think that's really about hydration and getting your salt in. Yeah. And, and also, you know, if we're out, out and about in nature, in sunlight, uh, exposed to the elements, I think that would be more of a stimulation that would even facilitate that process instead of sort of sitting at a desk. You know, so it's kind of hard to study this, we would likely be foraging for uh, food and resources sort of in a fasted state. And I think being in a fasted state may help that. I, a lot of hunters like connect with me and they say, you know, I've, I've been hunting all my life, bow hunting or whatever, a lot of bow hunters. Uh, my brother's a, a big bow hunter and they'll go out sort of in a fasted state and they feel like their visual clarity and their senses are heightened. Like they could smell better, they could hear better, they could see better. And these are all things that I kind of realized too. And, and looking back, having like people like hunters contact me, it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. From a survival perspective, it's like, okay, our ancestors didn't have refrigerators and pantries and things like that. They relied on, like you were talking about, you know, finding food along the way, foraging, 
or hunting. And so it was not uncommon for them to go multiple days without food, maybe even a week or two. And like you were saying, they would get, they would get stronger and more mentally clear over, over time because that would allow them to be better at hunting, more effective. And yeah. uh, they would, they would find their kill. And, you know, there's, there's groups out there like, um, like the Spartans, you know, from the movie 300, I had read that they actually uh, would fast throughout the day and then feast at night. So they would kind of practice a time restrict, a form of time restricted feeding. And they felt like, you know, they would train really hard in a fasted state and they felt like it gave them this incredible power. And of course, you know, they were renowned for their, their fighting ability. So there's, there's tribes out there that have done that. And so let's, let's switch into a little bit of time restricted feeding and extended fasting and, you know, you've talked about how ketones are produced. So how can this be a powerful stimulus for our body to produce ketones? So the state of fasting, yeah. We know that, you know, fasting really does mimic the, the physiological state of, of starvation and, and, or pre-starvation, semi-starvation. And that's really a stimulus for our body to, to be active, to really go out and, and and you know find resources so being in this mild fasted state so I'm, I'm kind of excluding the four-day fast and the seven-day fast so and kind of putting it in the context of maybe intermittent fasting where you know you stop eating between six and eight the previous day and your next meal is somewhere around two o'clock in the afternoon uh, or four o'clock in the afternoon the next day when you're in the middle of the next day, your insulin sensitivity is going to be higher. You will likely be running a mild calorie deficit. So the the things that we measure in the lab, like you know, AMP kinase and mTOR and things like that, they would be a measurement of those in our in our blood or our tissues would suggest that we're running a mild calorie deficit. But if we fed the previous day, we're sort of in a fed you know, but fasted state. Fed meaning we have all the nutrition that we need, but our body is sensing that there's sort of an energy deficit. So the way I think about it is that you are really amped up to go acquire resources, to actually do physical activity. And it's in that state where I not only feel that I have the potential to perform physically at my best, but also to perform mentally at my best. And I will specifically adjust my eating patterns like you know doing intermittent fasting and things like that when I have big projects that I have to work from an academic standpoint and that could be you know working on a, on a manuscript a book chapter a grant speaking you know teaching when I have a really heavy teaching schedule I do it in a state a mild fasted state you know that's produced with intermittent fasting yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Plato, even back the ancient Greek historian, he said, he has a quote where he says, I fast for greater mental and physical efficiency, right? So, and that's what you were talking about there. Yeah, you get sure. that better efficiency, better productivity um, when you're in this fasted state. However, and like uh, you had touched on this, having a baseline of, ket- of ketones or being a fat adapted where your body's good at taking fat and using it for fuel beforehand will help you get more out of the fast. Although fasting can be the best, you know, the fastest way to get into ketosis outside of using like an exogenous ketone or something like that. So um, they work hand in hand, they work together. Um, And you're getting, you and I are getting the benefits of fasting every time we fast because we are already, you know, our body's fat adapted. It's good at using ketones for fuel. 
Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's a, that's a key thing to, to discuss there. But um, I know you've also done a lot of research on cancer. You've looked at different forms of cancer and you've also looked at how ketones affect them. And a lot of these cancers are glycolytic, so they depend on a steady source of glucose in order to fuel, and a lot of and, and ketones are obviously an alternative fuel source. So I'd love for you to go into more detail on that and also how to use fasting, fasting strategies with cancer patients if they're undergoing chemotherapy, radiation, and what you've seen with that. Yeah, that's really an emerging topic right now, and we're really in the trenches from the perspective of a basic research science lab where we have published on uh, a couple model systems so far. Actually, the first model system that I studied was the U87 uh, glioblastoma cells, and that was, there were studies back in like 2005, and we looked at things like hyperbaric oxygen from the context of oxygen toxicity, but noticed that when brain tumor cells were exposed to high levels of oxygen, they overproduced oxygen-free radicals, uh, one of them being superoxide production. So I did not know why that was happening at the time. And I, I reached out to different investigators, and then I found out, although I had the, the biology of cancer, the book, it didn't really go into the Warburg effect. But I found out that this is a pretty common characteristic of all cells, that they have what some call damaged metabolism or dysfunctional mitochondria, maybe stated another way. It's never been observed that cancer cells actually have normal mitochondria. So pretty, pretty much most cancer cells have things like uh, immature cardiolipin, which is like as part of the inner mitochondrial membrane and is really sort of the glue that holds that membrane together. So you see sort of like structurally and functionally, you see changes in the mitochondria. And some may argue that these changes could benefit the cancer cells because the excess reactive oxygen species that these cancer cells produce allow them to sort of kill off the cells around it and actually enhances their survival in some ways. And they could, it generates the potential for invasiveness and metastasis. So that's kind of going on the rat, down the rabbit hole because I was studying redox biochemistry. But the important point here is that, that that's part, the excess reactive oxygen species is associated with their uh, high rates of metabolism and sugar production and glycolysis. And being in a state of nutritional ketosis Obviously, it's going to lower glucose availability, but more importantly, by decreasing the hormone insulin or elevations in insulin in response to feeding, by decreasing that, you are impacting so many different metabolic pathways that are under intense investigation by the pharmaceutical industry <laughs> to, to target cancer. And that could be the PI3 kinase pathway, the AMP kinase pathway, uh, mTOR, uh, IGF-1. We have a whole, you know, whiteboard in our lab with, you know, dozens of these pathways that are remarkably impacted simply by shifting the fuel that your body's using. Uh, and again, of course, you know, you're limiting substrate availability to some extent through glucose, but blood glucose really does not change from a baseline standpoint all that much. If you're on a ketogenic diet and there's a calorie deficit, you could bring that down about 10 to 20%. Uh, what you do eliminate is those big spikes in glucose that typically accompany a carbohydrate meal. 
with, with eating low carb or ketogenic, they're virtually abolished, if not significantly attenuated. So you have that effect going on. So in the context of exogenous ketones, they can be supplemented to further decrease your blood glucose and elevate, obviously, your ketone levels. And we've, I've demonstrated from early work that we did, you know, that in the context of growing cancer cells in the presence of ketones, at least in the brain cancer cells that we studied, uh, I was motivated by some extent from some research that was coming out of the University of Florida by uh, a Dr. Skinner. And he showed that neuroglioma cells and various cell lines that he studied, if he supplied ketones and subtracted glucose, that that was damaging to the neurons. So that would decrease survival, but also increase cell death. So those, those experiments kind of motivated me to, to go on and look in other model systems. And I've reached out to, uh, at the time, maybe 2009 or 10, to Thomas Seyfried, who was studying brain cancer. So we used a mouse model system that actually showed many of the features of cancer metastasis. And uh, we used that model to look at ketogenic diet and hyperbaric oxygen together. We've never really studied sort of the ketogenic diet by itself. We always study it in the context of other things like hyperbaric oxygen uh, with the ketogenic diet, ketone supplementation, ketogenic diet with ketone supplementation and hyperbaric oxygen therapy. So we like to do these combination therapies that are essentially all things that are non-toxic, but they have overlapping mechanisms. And our vision is to create sort of a comprehensive metabolic-based therapeutic strategy for individual cancer types based on the phenotype of that particular cancer. For example, does it express the Warburg phenotype? So is it highly glycolytic? Is, uh, does it express high levels of the GLUT1 transporter, you know, or insulin receptors or things like that? So we're sort of at that stage now, and we're studying a variety of different cancer models, and we're realizing some are very robustly responsive and some are relatively non-responsive, at least with the therapies that we're working with now. And it may we may need to sort of do a baseline metabolic-based therapy to slow cancer growth, to weaken it for other standard of care uh, options. Because there are some cancers like leukemia, lymphoma, testicular cancer, maybe early breast cancer, other cancers that we know survival can be increased with standard of care therapies. But the kinds of cancers that we really focus on are brain cancers or advanced metastatic cancers are not really positively impacted by the current standard of care. So this is very disturbing to us. So we want to direct our time, energy, and resources to really looking at you know, non-toxic but aggressive metabolic-based protocols that will get your glucose ketone index in that one to two range. For example, get ketones elevated up to three millimolar and get glucose down to three millimolar. So that would be a glucose ketone index of one. And we know from a neuroscience uh, epilepsy point of view, that's tremendously therapeutic to metabolically manage epilepsy. And we have demonstrated through a variety of different model systems that that can slow cancer growth or actually reduce 
cancer growth altogether in various model systems. So that's sort of what we're, we're looking at feasible ways to induce and sustain a glucose ketone index of one to two, and then let that be sort of like the first line of therapy that people would do. And then we have a number of add-on things, sort of a toolbox of things that we can add to that. So a glucose to ketone index of one to two for somebody that's dealing with cancer. Now, somebody that's just wanting to prevent cancer with a healthy lifestyle, we're looking at like one to one to up to four to one. I've heard you say that before. The one to two, that's going to take something like exogenous ketones or, or fasting in order to get there. Is that correct? It, it can be, yeah. I mean, I, uh, you know, I communicate with parents that maybe have kids, for example, that have like yeah. glucose transporter mm. type one deficiency, and they consistently, day in and day out, are maintaining, you know, a one, a glucose ketone index of one, meaning that their glucose and their ketones basically stay between three to five in. Uh, millimole per liter uh, all day. And if their kids get off the ketogenic diet, then they get the symptoms of the disease, but they could largely silence the symptoms of the disease just by staying in that metabolic state. So that's a, that's a unique you know, uh, condition. There's actually a number of conditions like that. With cancer, it's not very evident. If you get out of that state, there's nothing indicating acutely that things are happening in your body, that cancer is growing. Right. So uh, unlike with seizures, when you get out of that state, you you can go into a seizure. So I think it's important to maintain that state as much as possible because we not only know it's limiting glucose availability, but most importantly, it's really turning down the elevation, the basically turning down many of the drivers of cancer growth, including the ones, you know, I mentioned uh, AMP kinase, mTOR, PI3 kinase pathway, you know, the insulin pathway too. We know that it has pretty profound impact on that. And it, and that's really further enhanced with a calorie deficit. So that, that kind of brings up the problem. If someone is underweight, it becomes a little more tricky to implement the ketogenic diet and do things like intermittent fasting. And that's where exogenous ketones may come into play because of their anti-catabolic effect, potentially preventing cancer cachexia, so we, we're really interested in, in focusing on the cases that are like the hardest. <laughs> so the, the cases yeah. that are glioblastoma or advanced metastatic cancer when the patient is already underweight. Like, what do you do in that situation? If we can develop things that can actually help uh, in those situations with various model systems, not just one model, we want to work on various model systems and, and look at the effects, then we know that we're probably making inroads to, to, we're making major progress in this area. And we try to focus on things that once we complete the study and publish it, that clinicians can look at that study, oncologists can look at that study and then implement it from there. You know, we don't want to study some kind of rare drug or, you know, we want to study things that could literally be taken off the shelf and implemented by people who are reading the paper. So that that's sort of sort of ethically sort of what we focus on. Yeah, absolutely. And based on your research, what cancers have you seen to be most responsive to a metabolic therapy like a ketogenic diet, fasting, uh, use of exogenous ketones? 
Yeah, that's a good question. We don't really know definitively from a human standpoint. We have a variety of model systems, and I could send you sort of a link to publications that look at this question without, you know, going into the weeds and mentioning different model systems. For example, the GL261, you know, know, glioblastoma model, there's probably about a half dozen different brain tumor models. Uh, I think the important thing to recognize is that the more aggressive the cancer, the more uh, evident will be the, uh, the Warburg effect. So the more aggressive the cancer, the faster it's dividing, the higher the, the glycolytic activity. And those cancers are definitely going to be more responsive. No one would argue that they would be more responsive to calorie restriction, right? These fast dividing cancers yeah. that have a ro- huge appetite for glucose and glutamine and other, other, other metabolic substrates. So they would be sort of the most responsive. And if you do a biopsy on these tumors, they would likely express a high rate of insulin receptors. Glucose GLUT1 uh, transporters would be present at a very high density on the, uh, on the cells. And the GLUT3 transporter, too, maybe if it's a neurotype-derived uh, brain tumor. So there are various features. And from a, an animal in vivo human study perspective, the intensity on a fluorodeoxyglucose PET scan, too, would indicate the, the Warburg effect. You know, and right now, it's primarily used to identify the location, to some extent, the aggressiveness of the tumor. But that information and information from the biopsy can be used to select patients that we feel, and maybe the genetic data, too, that's a little more unclear, maybe a lot more unclear. But I think generally from... Um, a phenotypic perspective, not so much a genotypic perspective now, but from a phenotypic perspective, we can pretty much identify uh, the tumors that would be responsive to these metabolic interventions. Hey, I just want to take a quick moment and tell you about my new book, The Fasting Transformation. I am so excited about this book. It is a functional guide to help you burn fat, heal your body, and transform your life with intermittent and extended fasting. Fasting is the most ancient form of natural medicine. And in this book, I take you on a journey to help you understand how fasting improves your blood sugar and your insulin sensitivity, how it shuts down inflammation in your body, optimizes your hormones, turns on fat burning, and helps activate stem cells and deep cellular healing. Guys, you're going to learn so much from this book. You can check it out, The Fasting Transformation, on Amazon or on our webpage, drjockers.net forward slash fasting transformation. So check that out now. You guys are going to love the book. And if you have a chance, leave a review on Amazon. Thanks so much. So, and you're talking about using the the PET scan. That's where they inject the radioactive glucose and kind of watch where it goes. And cancer cells are more metabolically active, like you've been discussing. And so they gobble it up. And so you can see that on that scan. And that's used to kind of detect where the cancer is in in the traditional model. But what you're saying is we can use that to determine how glycolytic the tumor is and how, you know, get an idea of how it would respond to a metabolic therapy. Yeah, I think so. Because it's difficult. We know that glioblastomas typically are highly glycolytic, various forms of you know, maybe lung cancer or 
liver cancer, kidney cancer, and things like that are glycolytic. Other more indolent cancers like, let me see, testicular or prostate cancer, they may not show up as bright on a PET scan. So I would not write them off because yeah. although their glucose consumption may not be that high, their proliferation rates are low. But we do know that if you could reduce various drivers of cancer proliferation and growth, like inflammation, IGF-1, you know, a number of factors that you could impact the, the outcomes in these patients. You know, getting glucose, bringing your hemoglobin A1C down, reducing uh, HSCRP, you know, and impacting a number of bio, biomarkers, there's pretty good evidence that that's going to positively affect the patient. I mean, it's, you can't, it's really difficult to, to quantify yeah. that. But so I would say that even cancers that are not hot on a PET scan, I still think it's worth, you know, implementing these dietary and metabolic-based therapies that are really at the cusp of being developed right now. Uh, and we know there's a number of drugs out there, like the PI3 kinase inhibitors. It made, you know, a big press release on that. These new metabolic targeting drugs tend the most effective ones that are sort of on the shelf right now in clinical trials are much, much more effective in the context of a ketogenic diet so, or a diet that reduces insulin signaling. So that, that's a huge area of research and money that's going into that. Uh, Professor uh, Lewis Cantley is studying that. He's actually a speaker at our Metabolic Health Summit that's going to be in LA at the end of January and the beginning of February. He's our keynote speaker and will be sort of a mainstream cancer researcher, but his efforts are steered towards primarily drugs, metabolic-based drugs, but he's understood that a dietary approach can have a huge impact on the efficacy of a drug, in particular, uh, these PI3 kinase inhibitor drugs. So that's really interesting. So they're not just doing research on how the PI3 kinase inhibitor drugs work and safety and all that kind of stuff, but they're actually now tying that into, okay, how does this work when somebody's in nutritional ketosis? So that's the kind of work that they're doing now. Yeah, exactly. Because there, there are some side effects of these drugs that are sort of mitigated, like an elevation of, of insulin and, and glucose even, that are reduced. There's counter-regulatory mechanisms mm -hmm. that are not favorable <laughs> that occur with these drugs. And the ketogenic diet tends to reduce or mitigate many of the potential metabolic side effects of these drugs. And by doing so really can unmask the metabolic targeting efficacy of the drug to impact the cancers. So this is a very exciting area of research because to really move these therapies forward into the clinic, the, the clinic, I believe, needs to make a profit, right? And, yeah. and I, do, I do believe as a pharma, in, you know, in a medical school, you know, in a physiology and pharmacology sort of department, I really do believe that many of these pharmaceuticals that are being developed will ultimately have tremendous benefits, in particular now that they're focusing more on metabolism, and they didn't do that, you know, decades ago, yeah. they're really focusing on metabolic-based drugs. These drugs are far less toxic than many of the chemotherapeutic compounds that have been used, you know, over the decades. So I'm really excited that nutritional, dietary, perhaps intermittent fasting can further augment the therapeutic efficacy 
of these new drugs and maybe even immune-based therapies too that are that are uh, being studied now. Yeah, it's really, really fascinating because most drugs are really studied more so in a reductionist manner. Like how does it affect this particular tumor at this particular time, but not Absolutely. Um, you know, in a holistic fashion where how does it you know, impact all the systems of the body and how do we optimize all the systems while you know, utilizing this drug to get the best benefits? So I think that's really powerful if they're doing that research. That's a really good point you bring up, and it makes me think we try to do more top-down research. Hmm. You know, like we see calorie restriction tends to work for everything, right? And the yeah. ketogenic diet kind of makes calorie restriction feasible, and even you get added benefits even for the same amount of calorie restriction with a ketogenic diet than with a standard diet. So yeah. you know that that's very evident in the research that we're doing. But I did really focus a lot of research from, I guess, what would be a bottom-up point of view or reductionist approach using various reduced model systems. Like I, w I did perforated patch clamp technique in neurons, you know, in, in my PhD, yeah. and it's super reductionist pharmacological technique. And you identify something and then you build a therapy based on, you know, some, some cell studies or mechanistic studies. Whereas we try to do the opposite. It's like we basically vet out everything that you know can work in our whole animal research and then we go back and look at the mechanism but who cares about the mechanism if it's not yeah. going to work right yeah, absolutely. So many drugs have been shelved because of that sort of bottom-up strategy and you know not to criticize the national institutes of health too much but that's the kind of research the mechanistic research that they tend to fund this like very yeah what they think is, you know, sexy, elegant work where you mechanistically target a particular pathway and then build up, you know, to developing a therapy based on that mechanism. Yeah. And that's why I think it's so exciting is we're starting to see now research coming out that's using more of a holistic idea, holistic understanding. And obviously that's some of the work that you and Dr. Seyfried are doing as well. And so I know, um, like, for example, in the traditional model, chemotherapy and radiation is, you know, that, that's the traditional oncological model for treating cancer. And that, you know, utilizing <clears throat> ketones and fasting can really help that be more effective. And I know, you know, for myself, being a, a doctor who works with a lot of different patients, I have a lot of people asking me what I think of chemotherapy, would I do chemotherapy, this and that. And I always let them know, you know, if I was going to do chemotherapy, you know, it's an individual decision, but I'm doing it. I'm like, I would go in fasting, right? And I know you, I've heard you talk about that. Can you talk about how that works? Yeah, absolutely. I do think work is has been done and is continuing to, to be done. Dr. Walter Longo, who has the fasting mimicking diet, you know, and that's doing quite well. And that, that sort of system is being set up where sort of his profit can feed back into research and further sort of uh, study this effect. <laughs> You know, it becomes very difficult to, to fund a study to look at fasting yeah. in, in patients. Like, how do you get ethics approval for that? What what oncology clinic is going to approve, you know, fasting for that? But what it has shown is that if we do bring down, get those metabolic biomarkers sort of down and in place, and, and especially in regards to the secondary inflammatory effects of some of the therapies, including chemotherapy and radiation, are dramatically reduced. And I've talked to these patients, uh, a few of them in those studies, and, and some of them just doing it themselves because they can't really find an oncologist that sort of accepts what they're doing. They get little or no side effects when they go through therapy. And that 
that's really, really important. Yeah. So I, I think if that information gets out, that, that's going to be a tremendous advance forward because we've only had very little incremental steps in improvement of, of therapies for, for cancer. And it's been very, very incremental, if at all, for some cancers, not at all. I think if if this was implemented, you know, fasting prior to chemotherapy or radiation, you're going to see almost a step function, or at least from historically, since there's hardly been any progress, you're going to see a step function in the outcomes of the patients, you know, in their definitely in their side effects, but also in their therapeutic response and ultimately the outcome of the the therapy. So I'm really excited to to see that research moving forward and that, you know, there's a mechanism to sort of fund this, you know, with a fasting mimicking diet. Uh, I think people themselves can put together their own fasting mimicking diet, but having it together uh, like Walter Longo did, and he was one of our keynote speakers at the Metabolic Health uh, Summit here that we had in uh, in Tampa, and it really gave me an appreciation and an insight. And I've also talked to quite a few people who are who are using it to have it all together in one package like that, uh, and mimicking essentially just mimicking the effects of fasting to further augment the therapeutic efficacy of the standard of care being used, uh, not as as a replacement <laughs> by any means. We're not advocating, you know, yeah. standard care be replaced, but as a means to enhance that therapy. Then you start to get oncology clinics interested because yeah. you tell them, hey, we have something that's going to further enhance what you're doing. So your yeah. outcomes are going to be improved. So they typically respond to that and are, it's a little more feasible to get that, you know, into their, into their clinical trials. They're more accepting of it. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And so basically when we're fasting or on a calorie restricted, kind of like a uh, low calorie ketogenic diet like Walter uh, Longo, like his program has with the fasting mimicking diet, the cancer cells are weaker. And so they're more prone to the oxidative stress or they're less resistant to oxidative stress therapies and chemotherapy or radiation comes in. And it's just this huge blast of oxidative stress and they're, in a sense, they're hungrier, so they, they kind of gobble it up more effectively, basically. They, they pull it out more effectively, so there's less yeah. of that oxidative stress that impacts our normal cells. Is that correct? Yeah, th- that's true. And uh, there does seem to be a much higher sort of absorption, if you want to use that term, yeah. or a, a higher degree, a higher amount of the drug actually reaches the target tissue, which is the tumor, for a number of different reasons. There's an increase in blood flow. There's an increase in upregulation transporter mechanisms. Also, by limiting glucose availability, you are really turning down uh, something called the pentose phosphate pathway, which helps the neuron or helps the uh, cancer cells, rather, to regenerate reduced glutathione. So by being in a fasted state, you're crippling the cancer cell's ability to upregulate and sustain endogenous antioxidant pathways, uh, especially those driven by the pentose phosphate pathway to regenerate this reduced glutathione. And that's really the cancer cells, you know, from the last meeting my research associate attended, that's a lot of mainstream cancer researchers are focusing on that now, maybe for from yeah. a drug perspective, but I think it's it's really important to know that fasting can almost achieve that above and beyond anything that we know right now. Limiting glucose availability, reducing glycolytic activity can really turn down that pentose phosphate pathway that cripples the cancer cell's ability to protect itself from chemotherapeutic 
strategies that kill the cancer cells through a redox mechanism of enhancing oxidative stress. So, you know, that, that's a major, something that I'm very interested and passionate about and, and something that we're researching in the lab. Now, we do a lot of work with uh, high levels of vitamin C in the context of millimolar concentrations that could be achieved with uh, uh, IV vitamin C. And that drives something called the Fenton reaction. The Fenton reaction can sort of further enhance, especially in cancer, especially in a tumor where there's a lot of free heme, by driving the Fenton reaction that can uh, exacerbate and accelerate the oxidative stress, almost site-specifically in the tumor. So we're sort of focusing on IV vitamin C also as a means to further enhance some of these metabolic-based therapies and standard of care therapies. That is really interesting. Are you noticing any impact in the models that you're looking at with IV vitamin C impacting glucose and insulin levels at all? Well, yeah, that, that's an area that's sort of like the next frontier of studying. We did a lot of in vitro work, and now we're moving that into a number of cancer trials that are ongoing right now. So we have data, but it's all blinded. So we don't know mm. <laughs> really what the yeah. results are at the moment. But, uh, you know, I've been contacted by investigators that are, you know, absolutely sure that, that vitamin C is acting as a glucose antagonist because it uses mm. the same transporter mechanism right. as glucose. Yeah. So it may be functioning in that way. I, my primary interest, I'm interested in that, but also interested in its ability to, as a pro-oxidant, a lot of people don't yeah. know <laughs> vitamin C is an antioxidant, but... We're using it in a context of being a pro-oxidant, at least kind of similar to what a chemotherapy. Chemotherapy is a pro-oxidant. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it creates oxidative stress in the body. Creates it. So you pulse it in at particular time points. For example, you could pulse it in during exposure to high-pressure oxygen or yeah. oxygen in the context of you know what's used clinically. So hyperbaric oxygen therapy, like 2.5 atmospheres of oxygen, that can increase the tissue PO2 by 2,000%. So reactive oxygen species formation is an oxygen-dependent process. And in the context of high levels of ascorbic acid, which drives the Fenton reaction, you're going to get a super physiological synergistic elevation of reactive oxygen species, especially in tissue with a high amount of free heme, which there's, uh, you'll find that in tumor tissue. So yeah. we are sort of putting together compounds which are essentially non-toxic, at least in the range. Oxygen is toxic, you know, vitamin C could be toxic, but we're really studying them in the context of doses that are non-toxic, but when they're combined together, they can more or less site-specifically elevate reactive oxygen species and oxidative stress to stimulate apoptotic or necrotic pathways in the tumor. And that could be done together sort of as a standalone comprehensive therapy or in the context of augmenting standard of care therapies. Yeah. And by a pro-oxidant therapy, IV vitamin C and hyperbaric oxygen are supportive and healthy for normal tissue, correct? Yes. Normal tissue, they depend on oxygen for uh, aerobic respiration, but... The yeah. cancer cell is anaerobic, so oxygen is toxic to it. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. And one of the FDA-approved applications for hyperbaric oxygen therapy is actually things like radiation necrosis. So helping people recovering from the standard right. care therapy 
Uh, I've been to a number of different conferences, some, you know, a number of the, the ones that are probably most uh, high profile are the Undersea and Hyperbaric Medicine Society meetings, where doctors will show results from the patients, you know, one slide after another. Here is the radiation damage, and here's the enhancement of the repair of the tissue. So enhancing the normal tissue's ability to heal itself, you know, with, with high pressure oxygen. So radiation necrosis, uh, yeah, vitamin C can help normal normal cells can also be a pro-oxidant but it's more of a pro-oxidant in the tumor tissue that already has accelerated rates of reactive oxygen species and also free heme that's in it yeah yeah very interesting yeah mechanistically delving into this yeah but like i said uh, we're doing the trials right now in different model systems we're looking at a breast tumor a breast cancer model I want to look at a variety of model systems to really determine what works and what does not work. And we think right. it's equally important to actually, you know, publish data from model systems where it does not work. And I'm pretty passionate about that because we want to identify and let patients know that, you know, if it if it doesn't work for this particular tumor type, then that that's really important to know too. So we're doing we're doing a number of trials to just figure out what works and what does not work. Well, I think that's really good honest science, and it's you're creating a whole framework for how to use the metabolic uh, therapy, which, uh, which, which needs to be done. And so going into, let's say somebody's listening and they're about to go through chemotherapy or they're already doing it, how would you recommend they approach fasting beforehand? Would it be like, let's say they have, you know, they have a chemotherapy treatment at 10 a.m. on you know, tomorrow or something like that? What would be a good strategy for implementing a fast before that? Yeah, I would, uh, you know, tell them to work very closely with their oncologist because okay. every therapeutic strategy is, is going to be different, you know, and I don't know. There may be the potential for uh, hypoglycemia in, in patients if they cannot readily achieve ketosis. For example, if they have heavy liver metastases, they may not be able to sufficiently elevate ketone production. And in the context of low blood glucose, that could be sort of a dangerous situation. So I don't like to give blanket recommendations, but uh, from what I know and from sort of uh, what we see in the lab, I think a 24-hour fast prior to chemo, so stopping you know, your meal at 10 a.m. the next day and fasting for 24 hours to ideally achieve that one to two glucose ketone index. So if they're eating low carb already, they could probably achieve that, especially with using maybe something like a ketone supplement or medium chain yeah. triglyceride oil or things like that. Interestingly, MCTs are very versatile sort of compounds for nutrition. They they're fats, but they, you know, they're transported directly to the liver and not through chylomicrons. And they tend to have a, a glucose lowering effect by themselves. So there's MCT oil out there, there's MCT powders, there's ketone mineral salts that are available. Ideally, a compound that kind of combines them both together uh, is what I personally use and uh, has a, a pretty remarkable effect at sort of elevating ketones into that mild range, but also lowering blood glucose. And I think those strategies could be implemented. You know, uh, small amounts of these compounds can help you achieve those biomarkers that we know would make you more responsive to, to the therapies. Yeah, and so using exogenous ketones with MCTs is gonna help, obviously, your body 
you know, it's going to provide more ketones for your system, which can help save off hypoglycemia or the, the negative effects of low blood sugar, um, yeah, which absolutely. can help you prolong a fast, right? And Yeah, and make you resilient, you know, yeah. keep, keep your energy levels up. I think that's really important for the patient. And also in the context of sort of animal model systems, achieving that glucose ketone index of one to two, and there's some patient data emerging that keeping that glucose ketone index as low as possible will be beneficial from a variety of perspectives from lowering your your side effects to uh, you know reducing your uh, or enhancing your, your outcome uh, and yeah. I think that that's really important to, to do that but but I would also recommend you know working closely with your oncologist yeah. or maybe working closely with your your doctor that has an understanding of this approach and and really, I mean, there's some oncologists out there who just don't think nutrition is worth looking into at all. They don't really feel that that nutrition can have any effect on the patient. And, you know, I've come across that. It's hard to imagine that. But I, I, I do think that sometimes the ketogenic diet, and this is a ketogenic, as a ketogenic researcher, I will say that some people overinterpret my data uh, or overinterpret you know, there's there's dozens of ketogenic diet researchers out there right now that's studying cancer that they may overinterpret the data and kind of oversell it in a way that don't do chemotherapy, do this, and that that could be very dangerous. Mm-hmm. So we need to really proceed very cautiously when implementing this, but with also not overselling it as yeah. a strategy. And it's just like I said, we never do just a ketogenic diet only study. We do it in the context of other things. So, but I do believe personally that nutrition fundamentally is one of the most important factors that can impact response to therapy, but also just the general outcome for the patient. So that needs to be prioritized from my understanding. And you need to seek out, patients need to seek out practitioners or oncologists that are accepting uh, of the fact that nutrition can have a very, very profound effect on their treatment. Yeah, for sure. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about exogenous ketones. I know you're an expert in that. And so I've heard you talk about, you know, using exogenous ketones with, and you, you mentioned a little bit, with MCT, like an MCT oil powder, and uh, getting the exogenous ketones in kind of a salt form. So you're getting electrolytes as well, which is necessary when you're fasting or when you're basically driving down insulin levels, you need extra electrolytes. Um, so these exogenous ketones come in salt forms, magnesium, sodium, potassium, calcium, different things like that. So what would you say would be the best practices when you're looking for an exogenous ketone product and how to use it properly? Yeah, I think time will tell. There's a lot of studies going on right now. Uh, researchers are reaching out to me. It's good because they're in no way affiliated with any company or they're not even yeah. ketogenic researchers. They, they study something else, but they are taking off-the-shelf products and applying it to, to athletes, to people with you know type 2 diabetes. So this research is in progress. Uh, our company is interested in... Uh, potentially coming out with a product. You know, we have various patents or the University of South Florida, I don't own them, but the University of South Florida has patents on various applications like lowering blood glucose, you know, anti-anxiety, mental effects, even uh, physical performance, things like that. So from, from what I can tell from a therapeutic perspective, as I mentioned, using exogenous ketones typically 
in the form of a ketone mineral salt that's balanced. So you're spreading beta-hydroxybutyrate across monovalent and divalent cations that you mentioned, right? Sodium, potassium, calcium, magnesium. That would allow the individual to tolerate a higher dose of beta-hydroxybutyrate and to have you know, a more favorable electrolyte delivery. And taking that ketone salt and combining it with medium uh, chain triglyceride powder would probably be most uh, palatable and tolerable. And consuming that to get your levels up to the one millimolar range, maybe upwards of two millimolar range, so that mild state of ketosis will undoubtedly elevate beta-hydroxybutyrate to a level that becomes a significant source of energy for your brain and your heart and your peripheral tissues. So you will get an energetic advantage you know, doing that. And you also tend to get a lowering of blood glucose with a dose that elevates ketones into, into that one millimolar to two millimolar range. And we think that this the studies need to indicate this, but there may be a cognitive and maybe a physical performance advantage, but time will tell. My research is really focused on looking at these things in the context of an extreme environment. For example, you know, high pressure oxygen, a Navy SEAL would be exposed to, or, you know, in a hypoxic environment on top of, you know, Everest or something like that, Mm -hmm. where the individual is already put at a deficit and they're put at a cognitive and physical deficit, and you establish a supplementation protocol like ketones, it could be creatine, it could be other amino acids or whatever, to help them get back to their baseline levels. So what we call performance resilience. Yeah. (laughs) really my focus. And I can say pretty much without a doubt that You know, from CNS oxygen toxicity perspective, there's a big performance resilience. You know, if you're not having a seizure, right, you have higher performance, right? (laughs) So in that context, so from military personnel, if they're in a state of nutritional ketosis, you know, from their perspective, exogenous ketones are the way to go. Although there may be some interest in the diet, but something that could get there quick and sustain it, that's going to give them the neurological resilience to actually safely achieve their mission. Yeah, it's such a powerful word, yes. resilience, because we're all under stress in our life. And of course, you know, yeah. what you're looking at is extraordinary stress. And I think every one of us would love a little boost in our ability to adapt to the stressors in our life. And, and that's what you're looking at with this research. So um, yeah. you've so seen our chambers, I think, right? So you've, yeah, you've oh, yeah. our lab and yeah. you know, we have these environmental chambers where yep. we can uh, really make the environment very, very extreme and put it anywhere, put oxygen or pressure anywhere we want to go. And in that context, that's where nutritional ketosis really, really does shine. It really helps the brain maintain energetic functions we you know and cognitive resilience just by simply you know uh maintaining these neurotransmitter systems and atp production in the brain so we're doing some metabolomic work and doing some work and going back after we've identified that it does have an effect we're now looking at you know individual brain slices and to determine mechanistically why it's having that effect yeah, really interesting. Really looking forward to seeing more and more of the research you guys are putting out with that. Now let's go into just how you practice personally intermittent fasting 
on a regular basis. What's kind of your schedule with that? I know you said you did a heavy training day yesterday, so you ate breakfast this morning, but that's not what you consistently do. So how, like on a weekly schedule, what, what do you do with fasting? Yeah, it varies quite a bit because I do a lot of traveling, but generally speaking, I try to get to the gym to like, say, move heavy weight, I, I would say, like twice a week, if I'm lucky. Sometimes I'll go a week or more without it. Sometimes I'll be in there three or four times a week. But generally what I do, if it's a heavy training day, the next day, I don't really eat a heavy meal after training because I just don't feel like it. I'll just eat a normal, you know, regular meal. But the next morning, I will, instead of intermittent fasting, I'll have typically have a small ketogenic meal. Like this meal, it was uh, some ground beef, through butcher box they have great you know grass-fed yep. meat and like two or three eggs and i will not eat my next meal until after work typically or at the end of the work day so i'll probably go about six or eight hours and before i eat the next meal i typically stay ketogenic though but on a intermittent fasting day i'll have my last meal 7 p.m and then maybe snack a little bit until 9 p.m and then i won't eat again until the next day, probably three o'clock in the afternoon. So that's about 16, right? 16 hours of fasting. Yeah. And my first meal may be a ketone supplement. So it may be, uh, or typically what I do, I have so many products that people send me. <laughs> so what I do is, you know, in that fasted or semi-fasted state, I will get some baseline measurements, consume the meal, and, uh, or the, the ketogenic cookie or brownie or yeah. whatever I have testing that day. And I will make a measurement at time zero, 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 90 minutes, 120, 180, 240. So I have a, a notebook full of things That's that cool. I've tested. Uh, and I've put some of these things I actually put on the uh, blog, the keto yeah. nutrition yeah. Yeah. org blog. Uh, one interestingly was the, you know, the not, not a ketogenic food, but the quest nutrition kind of yeah. cookie. We're not funded by Quest or anything. We went out yep. and bought the cookies at Target, actually. But that's that's an example. So I have a lot of products. I would say for your listeners, keep an eye on the blog, the Keto Nutrition yeah. blog, and we'll try to get a product up like every month that we've tested. Not just myself, but women. I think it's important to get like yeah. a couple girls, a couple women, and a couple guys, and to look at the effects of that. So uh, yeah, different demographics. On days I do intermittent fasting, there are actually days that uh, are more appropriate for me to do sort of these uh, end of one testing of products mm. that are on the market. And it's interesting to see these products because they didn't exist, you know, 10 years ago. And that was a limitation for people. They just thought, well, I can't eat cookies. I can't eat brownies. You know, I can't, I can't yeah. eat these things, you know, and not that all the cookies and brownies out there are legit. I would say maybe about 20% of them are legit, <laughs> but I think the market is going in that direction where uh, entrepreneurs and the ones that do the research are coming out with some, some products that really yeah. allow people to sustain a ketogenic diet. I was interested to know how you were responding, you and, and, you know, the different test subjects, I guess some of your students are responding to different sweeteners like stevia and monk fruit and erythritol. Are you noticing like a consistent blood glucose balancing effect with those or are some people seeing a, a rise? Yeah, allulose too, I think, is used. Uh, yeah, like so I, I try to generally wean myself off of sweet things. I did, actually today I forgot, I didn't, I usually put literally a, t a pinch 
of stevia. I have an organic stevia that I use in my coffee in the morning in a big, I make like a, a liter of coffee and that's yeah. like all I have for the day, but I drink it slow. So that's what I typically, some of the products out there that I'm testing have erythritol. And I think that I get a bloating if I have too much. I do too. So I don't like that. Like, you know, our company does not have a product yet. We're still in the R and D phase, but one thing I will not put in my own product, you know, would be erythritol or if I do be a very, very small amount, but, but typically I do think stevia in a small amount is good and can be okay. But then again, you have that aftertaste. So some people just don't like it. Uh, allulose is pretty impressive. We don't, you know, we don't study it that much, but I know I've tested it on myself and my student who's type one diabetic, Andrew Kutnick, we've done it with him with his continuous glucose monitor and it has, it's very, very non-glycemic. Hmm. So uh, xylitol, too much xylitol can give me some GI uh, discomfort. Uh, so I try to stay away from like the sugar alcohols or if I, if I consume them and if a product that I'm testing has it in it, if they're keto cookies, for example, I won't eat any more than two, you know, yeah. so I will do like one or two, I won't eat like four. And I generally, you know, most, most of the things that are coming out in the low carb keto community, I think are oversweetened anyway. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think, but then have you tried monk fruit? Have you tried monk fruit? Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a pretty good one. Yeah, I think monk fruit is out there. I haven't, uh, I have it somewhere around my lab, but I have have to get the pure form and actually dose it. Yeah. you know, two grams, five grams, ten grams by itself for right. me to get an opinion of it. But it's incorporated in some of the things that I'm studying, and uh, I seem to tolerate it well. And I think it's of the things that are out there, I think it's pretty good. And you've taken, you've probably taken exogenous ketones that were flavored with stevia and monk fruit or stevia or monk fruit, because I know there's a lot that are out there with that. And you still noticed a good response with those. So I do. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Good. That's, good. that's a good direction. Yeah. Good. Cause it's somewhat controversial. I'm a big fan of using those sweeteners, obviously in moderation, but yeah. there are some people in the community that will say, Hey, you know, this, this could spike your blood sugar. And obviously everybody's unique, right? They can have their own individual reaction, but I wanted to see what your response was. Yeah. And things like, you know, the main sweeteners, uh, sucralose and uh, saccharin and uh, aspartame, things like that. Yeah. I'm kind of on the fence. Occasionally I'll, I'll consume a product that has it in it. But for some of our studies we do in the lab, to sweeten things, if it's a ketone ester, like we have to sweeten it or else yeah. the mice and the rats won't. The sweetener that we use is actually <laughs> saccharin. Uh, saccharin is very, very potent. And if you get it in the undiluted form, like, you know, 0.1 or 0. You know, I I have to look at the the gram amounts, but it's Uh just like a few milligrams per like the food if we mix it up for for a day. So it's, it's very, very small relative to some of the other sweeteners. And in regards to a lot of people ask me about, does it disrupt the gut microbiome and this and that? Relatively speaking, I don't think it. I mean, things like alcohol or various plant-based things or other things that we're eating, I think, have a greater potential yeah. to disrupt our gut microbiome unless we're consuming these things in very high amounts. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Well, this has been a great interview, Dom. I really appreciate your time. And 
Any final words of inspiration for the listeners? And where can they find out more about you? I know you mentioned your website, ketonutrition.org. Are you on social media or anything like that as well? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, quite a few followers. I should be easy to find on that. Yep. If you just kind of uh, Google my name and, and those terms should come up. Ketonutrition.org is sort of the one-stop shop. So you'll find links to my social media on there. And also, I'd like to mention the Metabolic Health Summit, which mm. is a conference that's really comprehensive. It's going, it has medical education credits uh, for medical doctors, also registered dietitians. You'll be able to get credits for that. It's heavily focused on medical research, basic science research, but also for the everyday person that wants to come there too. So it's not strictly an academic conference. There's going to be influencers there. There's going to be entertainment there. There's going to be, you know, all, you know, most of the famous podcasters are are going to be there too, that I've sort of done some work with. Uh, So I think there's going to be something for everybody there, but most importantly, it's a synergism of all the top researchers who are publishing presenting their data and provides a platform for the audience to ask questions in various panel discussions yeah and many of the people who are contributing in a big way to this community will be presenting right. and dr lewis cantley will be there so the pioneer and he will definitely be up for a nobel prize for his work that he's doing uh on cancer biology he will be there too as a keynote speaker well, that's great. Well, you know, thanks so much again, Dom, for your time. This has been a wonderful interview. And for you, those of you guys that are listening, I want to leave you with this last thought, that fasting and ketosis and the things we talked about, this really can unlock the dormant healing potential within you. It's safe, it's powerful, and it just might transform your life. So hopefully you got a lot of value out of today's interview. And if you did, I, would want, I want you to really just consider owning the entire Fasting Transformation Summit for yourself. That way you get unlimited access, lifetime access to the MP3s, the audio files, the transcripts, all these interviews, all the bonuses that you can leverage at any time. And I find that it's extremely helpful, especially if you are starting a fast or you're going to do an extended fast. To be listening to interviews like this can give you so much momentum and inspiration and encouragement and uh, really help you go the distance and meet meet the goals that you have. So if you consider owning it, we would be really honored and we'll see you on a future interview. Be blessed. Well, that's all for this show. And I want to thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on, or you want to dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.